Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. The Great Exhibition The 19th century's equivalent of the Olympics and Disney World rolled into one. There had been trade fairs before, most notably in Paris, but nothing on a global scale. Sixty years before the launch of the Titanic, in an era before cruise liners and airplanes, Henry Cole had a vision of an exhibition featuring the finest artisans, craftsmen and industrialists from around the world. But his vision evoked nightmares for his critics, who cited violent crime, terrorism, and even a revolution as possible consequences of the event. In this episode, I explore the origins of the Great Exhibition, the key players, the challenges, how it unfolded, and its enduring legacy. South Africa, January 1851. A chief named Hermanus Matrus leads a band of freedom fighters in an attack on Fort Beaufort. Having been driven from their native lands to drought-ravaged territory, the insurgents want to reclaim their home. This group had previously launched successful attacks on other British installations, but on this occasion, the United Kingdom prevailed. Hermanus was among those killed. This was far from an isolated incident. With the British Empire encompassing a third of the globe, violent conflict was commonplace. In the few years leading up to the Great Exhibition, British forces were involved in wars, or the quelling of insurgencies in every inhabited continent on Earth. Closer to home, the potato famine in Ireland caused the population there to drop by two-thirds due to starvation and desperate individuals taking their chances on immigration. Many of the Irish ended up in the burgeoning slums of the East End in London. There, they were joined by Jewish refugees fleeing persecution in Europe. The crime, pestilence and squalor was so bad that opponents of emancipation argued slaves in the West Indies lived healthier and happier lives than the poor people in parts of Britain. The general strike and frequent protests led by the reform-minded Chartist movement served as reminders that the government was sitting on a tinderbox. Despite this backdrop, 
Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, sent a letter to a German cousin boasting about the peaceful climate in Britain and claiming there was no fear of an assassination. He may have felt Britain was relatively stable when compared with Europe. Just three years earlier, the monarchy in France had fallen in revolution for a second time. Civil conflicts and revolutions engulfed Hungary, Prussia, Spain and Italy, while the King of Denmark was forced to cede some power in a popular revolt. Nonetheless, the letter was disingenuous at best. His wife had survived at least six assassination attempts in the previous ten years, and all of the problems that fomented rebellion in Europe, poverty, religious discrimination, and controversial manifests by men such as Karl Marx, were also present in Britain. Against this backdrop, few eyebrows were raised when British politician Colonel Sibthorpe declared that the Great Exhibition would end in crime and disorder. The Queen's own uncle, Ernest Augustus of Hanover, went a step further. He suggested that if the absurd folly was to proceed, government ministers should insist on the Queen seeking sanctuary on the Isle of Wight. As he put it, anything could happen when the discontented mobs assemble in London. In the context of the time, his fears were reasonable, but he was the wrong person to express them. As the younger brother of William IV, he was next in line to be King of England until Victoria was born. A conspiracy discovered in 1836 that sought to place him upon the throne in place of Victoria was something he denied all knowledge of. But the controversy cemented his unpopularity in Britain, especially within Buckingham Palace. His criticism of the Great Exhibition served to stiffen the Queen's resolve. She was determined to see her husband's pet project come to fruition. Despite being first cousins, the union of Victoria and Albert was not a marriage of equals. She was the heir to the world's largest empire. Albert was an obscure royal from a tiny, seemingly backward duchy in Saxony. In modern terms, it would be like the President of the United States marrying a politician from Moldova. His German nationality didn't help him win any friends in London. Out of desperation for a non-Catholic monarch, the British government had invited the House of Hanover to assume the royal crown a century before. Generations later, the German state of Prussia was a growing and powerful force in Europe, and it was driving notions of a future German superstate. William IV had done his best to distance himself from his German origins, and Victoria was very much viewed as being British. The idea of another German on the throne was not popular. Despite the precedent set by William of Orange, Albert was not granted the title of king. In his own words, he was just a husband. He struggled to find a meaningful role in society, but his fortunes changed in 1846 when he became acquainted with Henry Cole. Both men were involved in what became known as the Society for Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce. Cole, a native of Bath from a military family, had spent years working as a clerk while privately enjoying the finer things in life, music, theatre and art.
He wrote children's books under a pseudonym, and even invented an award-winning teapot. Unlike Albert, he had his finger on the pulse of popular culture. He changed the holidays forever when he released the first commercial Christmas card. But he had bigger plans. Through his role in the society, he helped organise trade fairs around the UK. During a visit to a similar event in France, he decided to up the ante and organised the first World's Fair. The logistical obstacles were enormous. Transportation, finding a suitable venue, and of course, the political and societal dangers attached to any such event. But in Albert, he found a patron seeking a project of his own. Albert agreed to become the face of the enterprise, and his wife, Queen Victoria, quickly gave her consent. The first task was to identify a venue for the event. Cole and Albert planned to attract tens of thousands of exhibitors and hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of attendees. No existing site in the nation could accommodate anything close to the scale envisaged. Greenhouse designer Joseph Paxton was tasked with creating a building to house the event. The construction would be placed in Hyde Park in London, an area that until recently had been predominantly used as grazing land for sheep. Its close proximity to Westminster, railway stations and major thoroughfares meant it was ideally located to accommodate vast crowds. Paxton partnered with engineer Charles Fox and a committee of experts led by Isambard Kingdom Brunel. In less than a year, Paxton's first sketch became a reality. A two-story glass structure with cast iron framing was erected in Hyde Park. The interior space amounted to almost one million square feet. The spectacular structure was dubbed the Crystal Palace. Coming up, an elephant is on the move in Essex, and the Russian exhibition is put on ice. Fascinating People, Fascinating Places presents Five Amazing Facts Brought to you by Daniel Mainwaring, author of When Babel Floods and the Treacherous Exhibit. The centerpiece of the Great Exhibition was a 27-foot-high pink glass fountain. After complaints about destruction from environmentalists, the original plans for the Crystal Palace were altered to incorporate elm trees growing in Hyde Park. During the exhibition, patrons consumed over a million bottles of soda. The exhibition provided comfort for guests in the form of Britain's first public toilets. There was a small fee for usage, hence the expression, spend a penny. After the Great Exhibition, the Crystal Palace was moved to South London where it lent its name to a neighbourhood and a football team.
it had taken 5,000 laborers, nine months to bring the shared vision of Prince Albert, Henry Cole, and Joseph Paxton to life. But the arch-critic Sibthorpe was unimpressed. Praying for lightning to hit the event, he said, there has never been a greater humbug, a greater fraud, a greater injustice than this proposed exhibition. Regardless of his concerns, the great exhibition was ready to open to the public. Prince Albert wanted the exhibition to showcase the endeavour and excellence of British industry while providing ample space for the rest of the world. Around half the event area was reserved for exhibits from the British Empire. That may sound like a lot, but bear in mind the Empire encompassed a third of the world. The pieces being displayed were a strange mix of mundane household items and extraordinary exhibits you'd normally find in a museum. Some were purely for display purposes, others were for sale. Small vendors made money selling goods to the public, while larger ones sought contracts from wholesalers and nation states. The second largest exhibitor was France. Now this was partly to do with geography, but also related to the ongoing battle the French were having with the British to gain predominance in the textile industry. Vast amounts of silk from Lyon caught the eye far more than the Welsh woolen sweaters. 600 American exhibits set sail on a freight ship from New York. These included a replica of a suspension bridge and a huge, bulbous lump of rubber provided by the Goodyear company. Another exhibitor displayed and sold a range of oils, lard and animal fat products in what must rank as the worst sales pitch of 1851, his tubs of North American bear grease were labelled as virtually useless but have some value in workshops. Chile, another nation from the Americas, provided a much simpler and more eye-catching object, a huge chunk of gold. Rugs, tapestries and even bird cages came from Persia, Turkey and Scandinavia. Some nations ran into logistical difficulties in preparing for the event. On opening day, the Russian zone sat empty. Its cargo, a 15-foot-high malachite vase, Cossack uniforms, and a display of fox furs, was stuck on a cargo ship trapped in ice on the Baltic Sea. Technology was front and centre at the Great Exhibition. English physicist Frederick Bakewell held a demonstration of the world's first fax machine. The device containing tinfoil and varnish formed the basis of all fax machines up until the 1960s. Meanwhile, the Applegraph vertical printing machine could produce 10,000 sheets an hour, more than twice the volume of all prior machines. Various primitive photography devices were also popular with the crowds. 
Alongside mundane items like shoes and tablecloths were remarkable exhibits like the diamonds. The Kuhinuru, or Mountain of Light, was a diamond that belonged to the Queen. It was at the time the largest known diamond in the world. But the crowds were unimpressed. It was rough, it was ugly. It was later recut before becoming part of the crown jewels. Much more impressive was the Daria e Nur, a rare pink diamond from Persia. But the jewels weren't the only visually stimulating items on display. Early on, it was decided to include an elephant in the Indian exhibition area. It was to be decked out in lavish gold and red ropes. However, locating and transporting a stuffed elephant from India proved impossible. In stepped a taxidermist from Saffron Walden in Essex. He had an African elephant in his collection. The creature was transported on the back of four carts the 30 miles to London over the course of several days. It provided an amusing roadside attraction for locals and a huge annoyance to the carriagemen caught in traffic on the old A1. Less eye-catching but equally popular was a display of locks and safes. As a notorious bloody code had been relaxed, crime was rampant in London. Theft was of particular concern. Suffice to say, Londoners loved their locks, and the British company Chubbs was the world leader in security. They had a huge array of devices on display at the Great Exhibition, but they faced competition from the New World. A salesman by the name of Alfred, representing the Day and Newell Company, had a display of his own. The level of interest skyrocketed when he performed a cleverly thought-out stunt. Foreign and local journalists received a formal invite to meet him at a vault in Westminster. They arrived to see Alfred Hobbs crack the famous Chubbs lock. Needless to say, interest in the American lock skyrocketed while Chubbs company went into a rapid decline. With the exhibits in place, the Great Exhibition opened on the 1st of May, 1851. At 11am, Charles Spencer departed from the grounds in a hot air balloon to signal the opening of the event. Initially, it was only open to the gentleman class, with 25,000 season ticket holders paying the equivalent of $500 in today's terms to attend. At midday, the monarch Queen Victoria arrived as a choir of a thousand people sung the national anthem to the accompaniment of a band and several pipe organs. The Archbishop of Canterbury offered a blessing before a report from the Royal Commission was read by Prince Albert. The Queen later referred to it as a day to live forever. The event had formally begun. A range of royals, politicians and dignitaries, including the famed Duke of Wellington, were present for the grand opening. Despite extensive preparations, there was an amusing case of mistaken identity when the Queen was introduced to an emissary from Peking. It turned out the confused gentleman was the captain of a junk ship who'd been riding on the Thames. Outside the event, half a million people gathered waving flags and cheering the arrival of the esteemed guests. These patrons refreshed themselves with beverages provided by the fledgling Schweppes Company. After an initial period of exclusivity, the Great Exhibition was open to the masses, with entrance prices slashed to five shillings, which is about five dollars in today's terms. 
The Times of London disapproved of the changing demographics, noting that the aristocratic element had retired and been replaced by a mob. Cruel satirists produced cartoons comparing the event to a zoo, as wealthy patrons curiously observed the working-class chimney sweeps, maids and lamplighters who tended to wear their occupational clothes to the event. In the following months, a variety of Victorian-era celebrities made their way to the event. Some, like Tennyson, were mightily impressed. Others, like Charles Dickens, less so. The likes of American gunmaker Samuel Colt rubbed shoulders with champions of the proletariat like Karl Marx. It was an occasion for men and women of every class. Despite fears expressed by Sidthorpe and the press, the Queen mingled freely without fear of harassment. She even donated a royal cradle as an exhibit and bought some of the items on display. As many as 100,000 people passed through the Crystal Palace every day for five months. Despite the vastness of the crowds, the feared crime never materialised. Just seven arrests occurred, most of them for pickpocketing. The presence of the fledgling Metropolitan Police Force and the grandeur of the occasion worked in tandem to keep criminals at bay. However, London as a whole was still a dangerous city. Many of the people travelling for the exhibition ran into problems before or after visiting the Crystal Palace. One such person, a young woman from Derbyshire, later recounted her experiences to the writer and researcher Henry Mayhew. She travelled by train from Derbyshire and made plans to stay with her aunt for a few days while taking in the exhibit. Her plans were cut short when she found herself lost in the crowded, smog-covered streets of the East End. An elderly woman offered her a room for the night and promised to deliver her to her aunt the following day. The promise was never kept, and she found herself forced into service as a so-called working girl in a London brothel. Her sense of shame and fear of rejection prevented the unfortunate woman from ever returning home. Coming up, the Great Exhibition reaches its conclusion, and I reflect on its lasting legacy. the next episode. I discuss East Germany. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is Ich bin ein Berliner. The origins of communism through World War I. The involvement of the Soviets. The rights of the German Democratic Republic. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And its spectacular decline.
The Great Exhibition wasn't just about hawking goods. There were also prizes up the grabs. One of the judges was Hector Berlioz, the famous French composer. He was part of a team who judged new musical instruments. One such item was a strange-looking trumpet produced by a Frenchman named Albert Sax. He called it his saxophone. Needless to say, it was as popular with the judges as it was with the public, and years later, it changed music forever, with the birth of jazz. Another prize was handed out for a yacht race, held in conjunction with the Great Exhibition. New York yachtsman John Cox Stevens built a yacht named the America. He took it to Britain and in August raced against 15 yachts from the Royal Yacht Squadron. The race lasted 53 nautical miles and encompassed the waters around the Isle of Wight where Queen Victoria had a residence. The American vessel won the race. It's reported that upon hearing of the American success, Queen Victoria asked, well, who came second? The response, there is no second, your majesty. This race spawned a tradition that lasts until this day and is now known as the America's Cup. When all was said and done, the Great Exhibition generated a profit of £186,000. In modern terms, that equates to tens of millions. The Royal Commission, responsible for the event, used the proceeds to buy 96 acres of land in South Kensington. Over the next 50 years, using that money, they established the so-called Albertopolis, featuring the great museums of the Victoria and Albert, the Natural History and the Science Museum, which all stand today, as well as funding the Royal Colleges of Art and Music, Imperial College, and the Hall of Arts and Science, known to the public as the Royal Albert Hall. The Crystal Palace itself, always planned as a temporary exhibit site, was deconstructed, then reconstructed in South London. It gave its name to a neighborhood and a football club. The Crystal Palace was never struck by lightning, as the critic Sibthorpe had hoped. But ironically, 85 years later, a fire broke out and the Crystal Palace was burnt to a crisp. The building may have been reduced to ash, but the legacy of the Great Exhibition lives on in London's finest museums. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.